You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 48 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris, and Bob is stuck wrapped in wires somewhere doing some wire running and IT kind of stuff, so he's not going to be joining us this evening. But today we're coming to you from the booth at Sage Public Library in Holbrook, New York. And Library Pros Podcast is produced bi-monthly, so don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to join our email subscription service from our website, thelibrarypros.com, and consider leaving a review on the service of your choice. And tell a friend or colleague, because word of mouth is how people learn about us. And don't forget to check us out on Twitter at, at the Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Today joining us via Google Hangouts is Laura Solomon. Laura is Library Service Manager at the Ohio Public Library Information Network, or the acronym is OPLIN, right? Correct. Okay. So part of her duties include providing quality broadband internet access to all public libraries in the state of Ohio. And she is a web developer for libraries as well. And she's a former children's librarian and the author of three books, uh, Librarian's Nitty Gritty Guide to Content Marketing, Librarian's Nitty Gritty Guide to Social Media, and Doing the Social Media So It Matters, or Doing Social Media So It Matters. I added a the in there somewhere. Um, and she was also named a Library Journal Mover and Shaker in 2010. So thanks for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us today. You're very welcome. I'm uh, very happy to be invited. Thank you. Yeah, this is going to be fun. So uh, we're going to speak with Laura today about the the Oplin, the Oplin, or is it just Oplin? Just Oplin. Just Oplin, okay. And social media and libraries, because it really is a large part of what we do now with regard to for publicity and just getting the word out. But first, let's chat about Laura's start in library land. So you started out as a children's librarian, right? I started out as a children's assistant, and then I got my degree, and I did, in fact, become an actual librarian, although I didn't stay in that job for long before I made a switch over to IT. Very, and it's interesting how people who work in IT got their start if they started in libraries. It, there isn't like one cookie cutter that people come from. I mean, some people are children's librarians, teen librarians. Really, definitely. Is, yeah. So, where'd you get your master's degree? I got it here in Ohio at Kent State University. Okay. And how did you make the jump to web development? Um, it's kind of a funny story. So. Let me preface it with, I grew up in a very geeky household. Um, my mother was a huge science fiction fan. She attended science fiction conventions. On top of that, my father was an electrical engineer. Um, and he brought home one of the very first TRS-80 Model 1 computers. Bravo. Um, <laughs> and uh, if I, I'm, I'm surprised you know what that is. Uh, and it actually ran uh, programs from a cassette deck. I love uh, and, it. <laughs> I love it. 48K of memory. Was, uh, and there, no was, one was particularly interested in this thing. And my father brought it home. He was very excited about it. And then he kind of lost interest very quickly when he discovered it was a lot of work to make it do anything. And he abandoned it. And it sort of became my project. Um, so that got me started on just coding in general, uh, doing it, albeit in basic, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> when oh, I was yeah. in my early teen years. Um, so I've always had that kind of background and I've, I've did that kind of thing also through high school. Um, so when I became uh, a children's librarian, um, 
my friend who happened to be the IT guy, the proverbial IT guy, you know, knew that I had this background. And he said, hey, Laura, there's this really cool thing called the web. And look, they've got this HTML code you might be interested in picking up. And I said, okay, well, I've got nothing else to do. I mean, that was a sad state of my life. And uh, so I indeed started picking it up along with a variety of other languages at the time, including Perl and a couple other things. Um, and it just kind of bloomed from there. You're talking my language because TRS-80 was the same time as the VIC-20 and the Commodore 64. Yes. And TRS-80 was the Radio Shack one, right? Exactly. Yeah, because the uh, the Atari, not the Atari, I'm really dating myself now, the Commodore 64 also had a cassette drive. And, okay. And I was lucky enough um, to beg my parents to get the five and a quarter inch drive, which I still have. And we actually had set up at, at my library, the Sachem Library, um, for about six months, and people were loving it. I actually had a guy come and start coding on it in BASIC. Oh, wow. So it really, we, we usually swap out uh, a new piece of old tech every month, but the Commodore 64 was so popular, we ended up having to make more room on the table to bring other old tech out because people didn't want the Commodore 64 to go away because the floppies still worked and the drive still worked. And Nice. Yeah, it was it was a big thing. So you're you're talking my language when you're saying TRS eighty. That's just pretty funny. Yeah, well, if you ever get an Amiga, call me because my husband will come running. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2010, you were named the Library Journal Mover and Shaker. Tell us about what led up to um, part of what you were why you were named it, which is SaveOhioLibraries.com, and the results of your and Mandy Knapp's efforts. It was kind of an accident. Um, how I fell into that, like much of my life probably. Um, so on one Friday afternoon in June of 2009, our then governor, Ted Strickland, made a pronouncement, um, which a lot of people at first didn't realize was going to be such a, a big, imp wasn't going to have such a, a huge impact. He basically said, okay, after 4.30 today, we're cutting funding to public libraries by 50%. Um, this was announced again late on a Friday afternoon when he thought nobody was listening. And, uh, well, of course, library folks were listening loud and clear. We got that message. Um, and at the time, there were, at least here in Ohio, very few libraries uh, involved in social media at all. Um, so in, when this went down, they didn't really have a, a platform to get this message out on any kind of scale. And at the time, I was very heavily involved uh, in social media. Well, I still am, but especially then, um, I had a lot of social capital going for me. And I used that extensively to amplify those messages. And I, and, um, I created a hashtag, SaveOhioLibraries. Um, SaveOhioLibraries.com actually was Mandy's contribution to that effort. I helped with it a little bit, but it was mostly Mandy um, doing the website. And between the two of us, eventually, um, and of course, all the efforts of hundreds, if not thousands, of library staff from around the state, and also we were lucky enough to get retweeted um, by people like Neil Gaiman and, and Perez Hilton. Um, so we had a lot of uh, amplification in ways that I would not have anticipated. But by the end of all of it, we were able to help save about $147 million in funding. That's great. We still lost funding. Um, it was not a total win, but it was far, far better than it could have been. Well, that's still a lot of money. Um, it, it is. I mean, I don't know how much, what the percentage was that, that 
still got cut, but it sounds like you made a real difference there. We tried. We tried. I mean, we had a lot of help. It wasn't just us. I think it was just kind of us spearheading a lot of what was publicly visible. And that seems to be the trend, um, not just here in the States, but also uh, I've heard from uh, if people who have listened to previous episodes of our podcast uh, down in Australia. There's been a lot of service cuts and, and financial cuts to libraries down there and in a lot of rural places as well. Uh, it's really kind of sad to see because libraries are a magnet for people. It shouldn't be something that, that are being cut. No, and that was, we were very lucky in that once we started getting the message out, a lot of um, libraries uh, started appealing directly to their patrons and asking their patrons to call their legislatures. Um, many provided mechanisms on their websites for them to contact um, senators and, you know, and representatives um, directly. Uh, so, you know, I think that um, our state government got the message very clearly. In fact, at one point, and I was told this later by um, the person who does essentially the lobbying for Ohio's public libraries, that we, we managed to shut down the servers at the state house um, with the volume of advocacy that was happening, and that had never happened before. When you shut down the servers, that's that, that speaks volumes to, I don't know if that means their servers are really not able to handle the load or whether, you know, you had that greater response. And something tells me it was that greater response. Yeah, I suspect that it was. It yeah. was huge. Well, that's something I'm sure you're very proud of and, and hope that you've been able to facilitate since then and, and to keep the, the funding coming. Well, funding is kind of flat. Um, and, you know, I think we're actually thankful <laughs> For that, considering, as you mentioned, that funding is often cut in many places. Um, but one thing that has happened since then is that Ohio's public libraries have come to understand what an important platform social media can be. Um, whereas many libraries didn't buy into it, they thought, oh, it's a trend, it's silly, it's MySpace. Um, now they understand that it's really not that at all. It's much, It's very much a communication platform. Almost definitely. Um, and I was... Uh actually talking to my dad today um and i was explaining how sometimes if you get <laughs> if you have a product that you're not particularly happy with if you find out that that company has a twitter account and you oh yeah you tweet them about your unsatisfactory feeling about that product it, the response is pr actually pretty interesting yeah definitely it's a huge avenue for customer service um especially complaints <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so why don't we take a short break, and when we come back, we can talk to you about Oplin and the importance of social media in libraries, because I think not a lot of libraries, there are a lot of libraries that are doing it, but not doing it well. So there's a whole bunch of questions that I have for you with regard to that. So we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about all that fun stuff. We're back with Laura Solomon from the Ohio Public Library Information Network. So you don't work in a library 
but you work helping libraries. Tell us about what Oplin does for libraries and what your role is as the library services manager. Sure. So Oplin has one primary mission, but it does a whole lot of other things as well. So our main mission is to provide broadband internet to all of the public libraries, and we do that. Um, we do provide broadband internet to, um, well, we have 251 library systems. That's not buildings, that's systems. We provide broadband to 250 of those. And the only reason that we don't provide broadband to, to the 251st is because they have a local agreement where they get it for free from an agency they had partnered with long, long ago. Um, so that's just a legacy thing. But other than that, we do. But beyond that, we also uh, collaborate to buy statewide databases uh, with the academic libraries and the school libraries and also with some funding from LSTA. So we help provide that. And we also do pretty much all the tech support for those databases um, in terms of access. We also do things like providing uh, SMS notifications for, um, notif uh, for patrons, like from your library's catalog. Um, we also help provide internet filtering at no cost for public libraries. Um, we also are partnering with uh, what we call in here in Ohio, uh, DigiHub. So most of the metropolitan libraries here in Ohio, the really big ones like Cleveland and Cincinnati, for example, have uh, DigiHubs that work with DPLA, the Digital Public Library of America, uh, to digitize all kinds of things. We, we partner with them. We help provide a little bit of funding for that and some, some support as well. Um, and then there's me. And I am essentially the in-house web developer. So we also provide websites for a little over 30% of Ohio's public libraries. I mentioned we have 251 systems. Um, so that keeps me pretty busy. I'd say, wow, so you, you're, you're actually the webmaster for all of these, or you're just like facilitating that part? Um, well, we, we provide a shell. So it's a content management system. So we build a site to spec. And then we say, here's your site, and you put in all the content, but we manage all the hosts. Once it's, we build it, we host it, we, main, we maintain it from the back-end perspective. All the content comes from the library. Okay. Because I was going to say, if you're the webmaster for that many library systems, I can't imagine how many libraries it is. And even if it's 30%, God, you, you wouldn't, I guess you wouldn't sleep. No, no. This is keeps me pretty busy. And when we first started this service, we thought we would top out at 10%. We're now, you know, we've tripled that. So we, we can't go much further unless I suddenly get a clone. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I know the feeling there. Uh, so it sounds like, uh, just to draw a comparison for, the pe for my uh, listeners that are here in New York and Suffolk County or Nassau County, uh, it sounds like you're kind of what we have here. We have a, a cooperative, li the Suffolk Cooperative Library System. So they kind of do the same thing, coordinated ordering. Uh, they handle the ILLs. Uh, for a while, they were making service space available for libraries, but that's changed a lot. Uh, they've gone uh, mostly to the cloud now. Um, and uh, they're one of, I forget how many systems there are in New York State. And uh, we also have something called uh, NILA, the New York Library Association, which kind of facilitates these kinds of things as well. Um, so it sounds like there's a, there's a comparison between the two. Maybe a little bit. We're, we're a little different in that we are not a consortium. Um, we are actually a government agency. 
So, which is uh, sometimes we describe ourselves as kind of sort of a, an arm of the State Library of Ohio, which okay. is, of course, also a government agency. Um, but we are also mostly independent. They handle some of our like HR and um, functions along with um, also our finances. Our, our fiscal agent. Um, so it's a, an interdependent kind of relationship, but we have our own board, for example. Oh, okay. And it is interesting when you, when you talk to people from other places how we do the same thing, but we do it just a little bit different. Absolutely. There are, there are no, uh, there's not a lot of similarities <laughs> across the board in library land, I found. It's just everybody's got their own way. Yeah, exactly. So since one of the roles of Oakland is to bring high-speed internet to all the libraries in Ohio, um, are there st- so every all the libraries are still working are actually working with high-speed internet now? You don't have anybody still pushing ISDN or satellite or or even dial-up. That, that's a very good question. So all of the main libraries of these systems get their broadband from us, except for that one exception I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, however, we do not do their branches. They are responsible for connecting their branches. And at this point, I was actually trying to investigate that very thing this afternoon. And we do not have a really accurate mechanism at this point to say, okay, this many libraries are using satellite, this many are using ISDN or something else. Um, I'm hopeful none of them are on dial-up, but you never know. And we definitely have some very rural areas that have to contend with getting access. And again, drawing the comparison to New York, I know there are some very rural places in upstate New York where they're working on ISDN or they're working on a higher higher speed than ISDN, but not necessarily like a T1 line even. Uh, and it's, it's difficult because they don't have large operating budgets, so they really can't afford that type of infrastructure. So they rely a lot on their, um, on their consortium or their, their library system. Uh, but there is a big struggle, and maybe you can even speak to this, about rural libraries and what they can actually do because of their budgetary constraints especially when it comes to technology? Well, we provide all of the broadband. Like I said, they're not, the libraries aren't paying for that. That comes out of our funding, um, which is statewide funding. Um, but they do have to manage their branches. So, yes, budget budgetary considerations do come into play there. And it's always a juggling match, too, between materials, maintenance, uh, salaries, and Internet access. Absolutely. Yeah. So the topic of bringing fast internet to libraries is a good segue to us talking about social media because social media has become such an intricate part in library land. So you've written three books that discuss social media in libraries, but it really is more than just posting to social media. You know, Is there a, a platform that's more successful than others when it comes to, to libraries and reaching the patrons? Is it Twitter versus Facebook versus Instagram or LinkedIn or dare I even say Google Plus? <laughs> I, I, I think we can safely write off Google Plus mostly, although I will tell you a story. Um, about five years ago, I was teaching a social media class for librarians in California who proceeded to correct me very clearly um, that a lot of Latino teens were still using MySpace at that time. Wow. Um, despite whatever research I had seen, my own assumptions. Um, so I since have backed off a little bit on making assumptions about the death of any particular channel. Um, but aside from that, there is no one platform, and it, which, and actually, the MySpace story and the the Latino kids that really kind of highlights that that you have to know your library's demographics. You 
cannot say, oh, Laura said tell us, you know, said to use Facebook. Laura said this, or somebody else said this, or I read this. You need to know your own demographics because they may be completely different and you may have a surprise like, hey, folks are still on Google+. Plus. Well, yeah, and it really is funny, too, when you talk about, you know, just here in Suffolk County, just talking between libraries, you know, some people love Twitter. Some people hate Twitter. Some people get more results and interaction through Facebook or, you know, Instagram seems to be the, I don't want to say the new hot thing, but it seems as though so many people have moved over to Instagram as their primary versus Facebook. Yes, and that's true, and that's that's playing out quite a bit. In fact, um, there's a lot of debate happening now about uh, Snapchat versus Instagram. Instagram basically stole all the good parts of Snapchat. Um, and so, and Snapchat's had got a lot of internal politics and problems that are not helping, uh, plus a bad redesign uh, that they did late last year. So um, when folks ask me about Snapchat, I tell them to be very, very cautious because all signs are pointing to wherever Google Plus is going. It seems to be that too, that way too, because that, that interface change was not a good move for them. No. You know, some people even say that, I mean, talk about your branding, Instagram's changing of their logo from the, you know, the old Kodak Instamatic kind of look to that flat look was a mistake, but I think they've survived that pretty good. Yeah, I haven't heard myself uh, too much about the logo. Um, you know, I haven't heard too much anti-Instagram, but you're right. A lot of people are fleeing there, and I use that word on purpose. I think they're fleeing there from not only Snapchat, but Facebook. Yeah, and the big joke is, you know, well, especially for the, the, the teens and 20-somethings, like, ew, Facebook? My mom's on Facebook. Exactly. It's become a place for moms and dads and grandparents. And which, Hey, we need some place to go, too. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It's not all about the kids. But I just find it interesting that there's a social media platform that seniors and people in their 30s, 40s, 50s have embraced. And Facebook seems to be that. Right. So, and, and that's important when you're choosing where to put your library you know, if you're dealing mostly with an older demographic, um, Facebook may be the place to go. You're probably not going to, but even Instagram's got gotten to starting to skew a little older. It really is. So here's a, a little bit off-roading from the script we say we never follow. But <laughs> when you're talking about posting, so let's say whether it's me with my podcast or, you know, at the library, and you want to push that message out to as many platforms as possible. Um do you recommend using a like a bulk host kind of thing, like Owly or something like that? Not that I'm, I'm not looking for an endorsement, but more of an observation on your part because I can voice my frustrations after I hear what, what you wanted to say about something like an Owly. So you're talking. I'm I'm thinking about like cross posting to multiple places at one time. Right. Okay. Um, there's there's been some controversy and some debate about that even when I was writing my books and when I first started kind of looking at I don't know recommended guidelines I think that in fact I think I have a blog post way back in the day on my blog about this you, no just don't do it and a lot of people and experts have backed off of that stance since then uh, and you have probably seen that more and more more. Um, things being cross-posted. But the problem that's still happening, and one of the reasons I think that some folks might be still kind of anti-cross-posting, is that when a lot of people or even libraries do this, they don't 
customize the content for the platform. They're, they're literally shoving the same message um, intended perhaps for one audience out to every single target market that they've got. And that's not an effective use of anybody's time. Right. Especially if you're following on multiple platforms. Oh, I read this on Facebook already. Why are they putting it on Twitter? Right. And, and the other issue that I see with it, although Owly is great for scheduling, you know, these different things, um, the hashtags may reach may mean something completely different on Facebook than it may at, on Twitter. And also, if you're if you're tagging people, their handle may be different on one platform versus another. Right. So that I always found is a struggle when I push my social media out for the for the podcast. Oh, well, now I have to go in and change this and I have to change that. Maybe it's at Bob for one, but at Bob 425 on another. So I always find it incredibly frustrating. So now you just open different windows and then you, you tweak the post from one to the other. Yeah. Yeah, you're, those are both good points. Things are not necessarily the same from platform to platform. Right. So what are your feelings about LinkedIn? Because LinkedIn... It, it, I understand that it's a way for people to social network to gain contacts to try to find a job, but it really is turning into a place for professional development. Don't you think, feel the same way about that? I think that it is. I mean, I think that since they've been tweaking their feed and they've, they've kind of started to back off on some of the other things like groups, um, <coughs> excuse me, that it really, you're starting to see, it's almost my feeling anyway, as I look at it and go, oh, too bad Facebook isn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I, in one sense, I think they found a lot of success that way. But yes, when you talk about professional development, that's one of the reasons I try to keep up with it you know, in the midst of all these other feeds is because really there's a lot of good content there. Whereas with Facebook, especially now, you know, after the election, heaven forbid, you, you're wading through a lot of stuff on Facebook that you may not want to deal with anymore. Um, my personal feelings only, but LinkedIn, I don't have to worry about that. And that's very true, too, because with Facebook, I actually just went through, and if anybody was a friend of mine on Facebook that isn't a friend anymore, I apologize, but I had to go through and kind of purge a little bit because some people just, you know, post what they had for breakfast, post what they had for lunch, post what they had for dinner, you know, talked about what happened when on their, you know, they post maybe, you know, 30 or 40 times a day. And that's really just not, for me, that's not the social experience, social media experience that I want. Um, I want to see what friends are doing. I want to see what's going on in the world. But I don't want to get inundated by the spam posters, and I don't want to get uh, caught up in the, the fake news and the, hey, this chamois will take all of the scratches off your car's finish <laughs> and all that other stuff. So whenever I get a chance, there's a little drop-down arrow, and you say, I don't want to see this ad. Why? Because it's not relevant to me. Um, I just find it – I mean, it's getting better now since Zuckerberg went before Congress. But it's still there, and it's just you have to wade through all this bloat to get just to the, the stories that you're looking for. Exactly. I, I find I have to spend time on Facebook because of, well, friends and family, and it's even part of my job, but I become a much more painful experience overall. It's not something I really enjoy anymore. It's almost a, a chore. That it, for me now, it's the end of the day, right before I go to bed, and I just scroll through, and there's no way I can catch up to the feed. But I just try to get. I try to absorb as much as I can in the short period of time I'm, I'm giving myself to look at it. Um, but one thing about going back to to uh, LinkedIn for a minute, there's one feature that they have now. When uh, one of our previous guests uh, writes articles, you know, there's now this thing. Instead of a post, it's more like an article, and you can literally yes. self-publish. You know, works that you would see 
ordinarily in a, in a magazine or, or some type of periodical. And it's almost like become its only its own like self-publishing tool. Yeah. And in fact, I know that I will cross post my own blog posts uh, and those of my agency to LinkedIn as well um, for that very reason. And I, I do wonder if they're aiming to perhaps at some point compete with like Medium. Um, I, I could easily see them going that direction, but I haven't seen anything officially that says that. Right. It's just it's an interesting spin. Is it true that LinkedIn has more users than any other social media platform? I know at one point they were making that claim. You know, I don't know. Um, I don't actually often see it appear in most of the comparisons that I look at because it's kind of its own, at least right now, it's considered its own unique animal. They don't usually put it in the same bullpen as Facebook and Instagram and so forth because it's like, oh, that's the professional one. Right. It's not a selfie center. Right. That's a good, that's a good <laughs> phrase. I like that. So let's talk about Twitter for a minute. Um, I tend to like Twitter for, for professional development, but I also like uh, the ability to connect with, um, I don't want to say like-minded people, but I'm going to say, I'm going to say it in terms of the profession. I find it really interesting to, like we said before, to reach out about those products you don't like but also to reach out to maybe, say, a podcaster that you're interested in or maybe a person who you saw at a conference. And it gives you that one-to-one immediate communication that didn't exist before. Yeah, I I am a big fan of Twitter. Um, You mentioned, I think, that you found me because of Twitter. Yeah, yeah, Uh, you were (laughs) tweeting during the Computers and Libraries conference, yeah. And I was like, whoa, i got to speak to this person. Yeah, I I tweet a lot during conferences. Um, So, you know, I've had kind of a a love affair that's been pretty steady with Twitter. I first discovered it in early 2007, um, and I've been going pretty strong ever since. Um, Because it seems like you're right. It's like the one platform where I don't have to wade through so much garbage. It's just a lot of, you know, and, and maybe I do have the attention span of goldfish, so it's perfect for me because it's so short anyway. Uh, but, you know, you get a little bit of everything and, you know, I, I can tune it at any time and there's almost always something valuable. Yes, there's funny stuff in there. Yeah, there's some stupid and stuff in there. I mean, there are human beings involved. That's always going to be the case. Right. But I have learned a lot or found great resources just through people in the profession who are tweeting. Right. And, it, you know, talk about it in terms of a, a platform for communication. Uh, even if you just look at the movers and shakers lists every year, uh, if you look, if you go back to 2002, 2003, it lists someone's email address. And has, it has now progressed to the point where it has their name, where they work, their Twitter handle, and then their email address. Hey, I, I have been contacted many times to do talks or whatnot through Twitter, um, not necessarily through my email. I'm, I think that's great. And it, it's just interesting how um, you can reach out through Twitter. It, it's unique in that it's easier to reach out to people. And I, it's almost like the Robin Williams of, of social media because it's a complete <laughs> stream of consciousness. Yes. That's, that's a really good comparison. Yeah, they, it's, just, it's just there. So. Whether you're, you know, live tweeting at a conference or you're watching The Walking Dead or you're watching a ball game or something and you're tweeting about it, you know, and then you throw in the hashtags, which makes it even more interesting, especially when you're at a conference or some kind of special event where they've assigned a hashtag to it. Uh, it's, it's just easy to keep up with what's happening. 
Right. And, then and that, I, that's why one of the many reasons I really like it. Right. And then Facebook went and borrowed it. I don't know how, I don't know that Twitter necessarily um, got some kind of patent or, or trademark or something on the hashtag. Um, but Facebook seems to have latched onto it pretty good. Facebook allows for hashtags, but I virtually never see anybody use them or follow them on Facebook. Not the same. Not in the same way. No. And no. And you don't get the same, uh, like I said before, stream of consciousness that you get with Twitter. So if, let's say I'm in computers and libraries, and it's wasn't it CILDC18 or something like that. It was just CILDC, I think, this okay. year. They didn't have a year in it. So it was really interesting, especially at the end of the day when you're going back up to your room and you, you pop on the hashtag and you see, oh, this person was talking about this and talking about that. And for me, it's a great place I can try to find guests for the podcast, too. <laughs> so it always helps. It always helps. So social media really is a marketing tool for libraries as well. So can you give us a sense of what libraries are doing right and wrong when it comes to social media? Well, I'm going to back you up right there and suggest you maybe not call it a marketing tool. Um, okay. And that is just because it was never really designed to do that. Um, it is a communications medium, but it really is intended to build relationships. It's social media. It's never been intended to broadcast messages. And of course, that's how many libraries use it, much to their detriment. Um, it's really for building relationships. And that's a weird place for an organization or a business to be where you've got, you know, with the broadcast model, you've got the one-to-many communication model. Um, and it doesn't really work like that in social media. We, we sometimes think that it does because we are saying something and many people are possibly consuming that message. But the whole point of social media is for your library to build a relationship with that person, that individual on the other end which means also that the library has to act as an individual. Libraries overall, I think, over the past decade have gotten better at that, but, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I, I mean, but is it, uh, I, I hear so many people in library land that, that mention, well, maybe we should be talking about our databases more to get our database numbers up, or maybe we should be talking about particular programs that we're doing to, to get our numbers up. Um, and then you get other libraries that are doing nothing but, you know, silly videos. So wh where's the, the middle ground there? Well, I'm not personally a big fan of the silly videos. I, I know some of them have been popular, and I'd say good for them, but I think the vast majority don't do very well, and I'm not sure they reflect very well on a lot of libraries. There, there has to be a middle ground, and of course, we always have this marketing agenda our hidden agenda going on because we are, we're talking to our patrons. We want something to happen, but we have to also provide value. Um, there's, if there's no value in the relationship, nobody cares. You know, like when you look at your Facebook feed, when people are posting lunch and their dinner, there's no value in that for you. So you unfollow or unfriend them. The same thing happens when you're talking to patrons. So whenever we are talking about our programs, or our summer reading, or you know, our new collections, whatever it is, yeah, we can do that, but we have to prove value. And a lot of that comes down to, hey, folks, this is what you are going to get out of it. And, and for the many libraries, they're coming at it from the perspective of, hey, look at this cool thing, and not telling anybody what the carrot is that's going to make them come. There's no payoff. Exactly. And you have to ask yourself, what is the payoff? You know, what is... 
the reason why you have somebody assigned to social media, you know, and, and what's the goal. And I, I'll even go so far as to say some directors don't even know what the goal is. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. And, and honestly, I'm not sure that social media has is finished defining itself. Because like we said before with LinkedIn, it's kind of transforming or it's kind of always metamorphizing in one way, shape, or form. Because it's not that it's trying to find itself again. It's just that as times change, the social media has to kind of evolve with those times. It is very definitely evolving. And what's interesting, in fact, I just wrote a paper for a peer-reviewed journal that I'm hoping will be accepted about this. And the whole process for me was very depressing, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> not the journal, not the journal, but the, the topic, because essentially what I was talking about is we're, we're actually starting to see the decline of social media. Um, it is not as social anymore. Um, and the Facebook fiasco is only one symptom of many, many. Um, what we're starting to see now is that we're losing that you know, if some libraries want to think of it as the one-to-many model, it never really was a broadcast model. But now that's really going away because a lot of people are switching over to messaging apps. That's very true, especially um, like in terms of even Facebook Messenger. Yes. Or, or in messaging or DMing in Twitter. There's so many and, – and Google Hangouts. And there's so many different ways now, WhatsApp and, and Snapchat – I actually have different people who I speak to on some of these different platforms, not and and then obviously the regular texting through either your iPhone or your your Android device through SMS. It it it's almost overwhelming. There's a lot of choices. I think just like everything else, it will eventually shake down to just a couple. Um, but the point is that the the medium is changing in a significant way, and it's changing to a a new format that frankly is should be scaring libraries. It's scaring businesses because libraries can't follow most people there because they only want to talk to their friends and the chances of someone friending someone uh, friending a library is going to be significantly less. Right. And you just, I just had this image come across my head back in the seventies when CB radio was a big thing. They actually brought a CB radio set to the white house and president Ford tried to get on there to speak to people on Channel 19 or whatever. And it was such a fiasco because so many people were chiming in at the same time. And I'm just thinking in terms of what we just talked about and how, you know, you're talking about the one-to-many scenario. Imagine if you were doing that through Facebook Messenger and every single person who wanted to reach out to the library started hitting Messenger. You, you would need a team of people just... You, you know, answering or even deciphering what people are trying to say. I hope we get that luxury and that we're not just simply disincluded. Yeah, that's true, too. Maybe uh, maybe it'll only be the new complaint line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's entirely possible. Right. So when you aren't writing books, facilitating di the digital end of libraries, or saving Ohio libraries from budget axes, you do web development. Tell us how you got started with that. We kind of covered that before, but if you can give us a little more on that. And how long have you been doing it, and when do you find time to do it all? <laughs> well, web development really is truly my day job. That's The social media is extra um, and just something I, I keep on the side because I fell into it and I haven't found a way out of it yet. Web development is 
Um, I've been doing that in various formats in libraries now for a state agency doing it for public libraries um, for I've been doing it. Well, I've been doing web development for over 20 years. I'm feeling really old right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. Don't worry. You, you, you had the TRS-80, so you. Yeah, you, I know. I dated myself from the from the get go. But you give me a th- I give you a thumbs up for that. So. <laughs> um, but I really enjoy. I mean, there's always things to learn. You know, that's. I think that was one of the things that was missing for me as a children's librarian. Is it was a lot of fun. I do, I tell people I just moved from one kind of programming to another. That makes sense. But I know what you mean, too, about wanting to learn. And and as things constantly evolve in the digital world, you have to almost evolve and evolve with what's happening. Otherwise, you'll still be writing, you know, basic in on your TRS-80. Right. And that, not, it's, that doesn't bode well for a, uh, a web platform. No, not with 48K of memory. It's not going too far. Yeah, you can't really, you know, work HTML5 into uh to visual basic or any kind of the kind of basic software <laughs> language um so what drives you i mean is it is there a challenge for you in, in in the web development like is there something that you're always trying to push new maybe some new css you want to throw into a site or something like that definitely i like playing with new things when i get the time um you know i we actually use drupal as our back end mm-hmm um, which I really have enjoyed. I've been working with it for over a decade. Um, I've definitely had my moments where uh, my hair turned really gray or I probably tore out half of my hair. Um, but I think that's true for any kind of development. Um, you know, there's always new things that you can do, new things that I can add, um, new things that I can tweak. It keeps me busy. It keeps me off the street. I'm not in a gang. <laughs> that's pretty funny. So do you prefer Drupal to, uh, you know, what most people are using now, which is WordPress? I do, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, I do actually work with WordPress. We have a couple local, um, not local, but they're for our agency. Our agency runs a couple different blogs, and we run those on WordPress. They're very simple. Mm-hmm. The thing I, ha- I try to remind people is that WordPress wasn't really created for developers. Um, it was created for people who want to throw a site together, and it started out as a blogging platform. It wasn't developed originally as a content management system. Now, having said that, Drupal is not a content management system either, which surprises a lot of people. It's, it really isn't. It's actually a development framework, um, mm-hmm. which is why it's got such a steep learning curve. And why a lot of people who are used to working with WordPress get scared because it is not the same kind of product, but it often is used as a content management system. So it can be many different things. You can use Drupal to build apps. You can use it to build all kinds of um, applications online. You can use it, obviously, to build websites, which is what we do. But the fact is it's very powerful under the hood. That's not to say that WordPress doesn't have some power, but it, it's it's not structured the same way underneath right because wordpress doesn't have the um the app capability among many other things and i I, it also it's got security issues um you know i definitely spend a lot more time patching wordpress than i do drupal but aside from that i know i was having a conversation with someone who studied computer forensics and her brother i think she told me is a software developer and um, he told her, don't go any place where they're using WordPress. It's a security nightmare. Um, 
his perspective, but also be just based on the time I spend patching, um, it's it's really a, a huge target, which is not really WordPress's fault. It's just there's a lot of them. You know, the, a lot of the web is run on WordPress, and so it's a much bigger bullseye. Well, that makes sense, too. I mean, because a lot of people who are using WordPress aren't necessarily sophisticated web developers either. So they don't know to put in, pl- you know, plugins that will help them, you know, not get fished and spammed and, and you know, get hacked or, you know, and all that other stuff. So, you know, you have to kind of know a little bit about if, if you're not super sophisticated, maybe you should just look for plugins that are going to work to protect your site. Right. Because, you know, plugins are really how WordPress works. From, for lack of a better way to describe it, even if you're doing, uh, you know, some kind of, um, uh, the name escapes me at the moment, where, you you know, it's like a format for a site. Um, I forget what it's called, just off the top of my head. It, it's been a long week, and it's only Tuesday. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. But you know what I mean? Like, the, themes, I'm sorry. The word is themes I'm looking for. You know, if if they're not protected, maybe there's a flaw in that theme that may be a backdoor way to get in, too. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, Drupal is a platform that's pretty popular over here, too, in, in Suffolk County here in New York. So I know a lot of the libraries do use Drupal either for app development or for website development. So it is something that is is popular, but it, it doesn't have the same name recognition that WordPress does. Right. And that's okay. Sure. It keeps them flying under the radar a little bit more. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. So thank you so much for sharing your story and t- telling us all about this great stuff with social media. And because um, you've done so much for, for Ohio, uh, and we can see why you were named Mover and Shaker in 2010. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to ask Laura our top 10 library questions of what we like to call the 032 list, which is the Dewey number for top 10 lists. We always give thanks to Melanie Cardone from the Long Republic Library for naming the list of questions that we ask our guests. And even though... Uh, Laura has not worked in a library for a really long time. We're going to wing it and see what happens when we go through the list. So we'll be back in just Uh a moment. So we're back with Laura Solomon, who's going to be our next participant, or sometimes we call them victims, in the uh, 032 list. So the questions in our list are inspired by uh, Literary Hub. It's an informative library-related news site that has stories and interviews related to library land. And you can see their work by visiting their website, lithub.com. Visit the site because they educate and inform the library world on great topics from all over the world. Thank you, Literary Hub. Okay, first question. What did you want to be when you were a child? Oh, boy. Um, I actually wanted to be a writer, believe it or not. Um, I ha- wanted to be a writer for a very long time. And then I went wanted to go to college and be a writer. And my father said, I'm not paying for that. And so I stopped wanting to be a writer for at least a while. And uh, I went to college to be a history major so that I could be an archivist. Um, I've sort of come close to that in a kind of sort of way. Oh, yeah, digitally, sure. Because you're, you're creating the content that is then archived. Yeah, sure. Sure. We'll, we'll call it that. That works. <laughs> <laughs> What's your first memory of a library and who brought you there for the first time? Wow. 
Wow. My first memory of a library is, uh, I'm not sure what age I was, but I would assume that I was probably nursery school age. Uh, my mother brought me there. It was the public library in Heightstown, New Jersey. Um, and uh, my, I remember my first memory there was sitting down on the floor with Gene Zion's The Sugar Mouse Cake which to this day is one of my favorites. It's one of his lesser-known books, but it's absolutely fabulous. That's impressive that you remember the title of the book, too. I had to hunt it down as an adult because I knew I, all I knew is that it was a book and it had sugar mice on a cake. <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny. So I know you don't work in a library now, but you had worked in a library in the past. So when did you decide to either work in a library or come to the profession? And if it wasn't your first career path, um, because it isn't for a lot of people who get into the library field. What was that first career path? My first career path was actually as an outdoor education uh, slash environmental education teacher, and I worked in a residential facility uh, where kids came to us from local schools, and we would teach them things uh, and like herpetology. We'd teach them how to build survival shelters. We would teach them how to build rope bridges. We would teach all kinds of fantastic hands-on things. Um, I got to handle snakes. I got to put, uh, I love to let daddy long legs run around in my mouth because the kids thought that was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> they actually have little glands on the bottom of their feet, supposedly that makes them taste like bananas. I never experienced that, but they can't hurt you. Um, so it was a really fun kind of show to do. That's um, pretty funny. Freak the kids out. Yeah. Teach wild edibles, all that kind of thing. I mean, it was a really, when you talk about learning new things, it was a job I absolutely loved because I was constantly learning new things on the fly. That's really wild. That's really cool. Okay, so who's your favorite fictional librarian? Jeez, I had a hard time even thinking of any. Isn't that awful? Um, <laughs> do I get a multiple choice list? Uh, well, I can tell you what some of the, the choices have been in the past. There's the, sure. There was a Jedi librarian in one of the Star Wars movies. There was. Oh yeah. There's always, you know, the Batgirl. Um, there was a librarian in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, what's some of the others that were brought up? There was a librarian in Indiana Jones. Uh, what else is out there? I think I'll have to call it a Batgirl, just because I watched her all the time growing up. And she was cool, wasn't she? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so. What would you be doing if you weren't working, not necessarily because you don't work in a library anymore, what would you be doing if you weren't working in a library field? If I could afford to, if I won the lottery, that's not to say I don't enjoy my job, but if I won the lottery but still had to work, what a set of circumstances that would be, uh, I would probably go back to being an environmental ed teacher I, or uh, a park naturalist, which was something else that I did as well, where I was outside all the time, which is completely different than what I do now. That really is cool. I'm a little jealous. <laughs> that is really cool. So what is your favorite section of the library? Now, originally this question was meant fiction, nonfiction, cooking, or history. But with the advent of all, not necessarily advent, but with now that all the maker spaces and, and story time nooks and all these other things that libraries are doing now, it could be anything. It could, it could be the bathroom if you want it to be. <laughs> I, I can't recall a library bathroom that really fascinated me at the yeah, moment. Yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, my favorite section. You know, I actually spend, this, this. some folks out there will groan, but I spend a lot of time um, reading teen stuff. 
Um, I have just really found teen authors to really be on the ball. Um, they're, I think they write for, frankly, a more demanding audience in a lot of ways than some adult writers. Um, so I've, I've just been reading an awful lot of teen fiction, fantasy, science fiction, whatever. It is entertaining. It really is. And like you, we already know, I have the attention span of a goldfish, so that's kind of important. <laughs> that's pretty funny. So uh, if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to, let's say, your home library? as opposed to a library you work in, which you don't. Well, my home library, what would I add? I would, first I'd probably give them more meeting room space because it's a very small rural library and I know that that space is heavily used. Um, that's a very practical use of my unlimited funds that I supposedly have. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, you know, I, what would I put on there? You know, I would say, hey, you know, I know your library has a podcasting studio. I think something like that would be a fantastic use of, of these imaginary funds and something that isn't readily available in that area at all. Yeah, it is a lot of fun, too, to, to see people come in and uh, to want to use it, for one way, whether it's oral history or, or recording a podcast or, or doing anything with regard. We even do our, um, our audio newsletter there, which is a lot of fun, too. You have an audio newsletter? Yeah, we have uh, kids come in for community service. For people who are um, who are blind or sight impaired, so they can actually go to the website and uh, download an audio version of the newsletter. That's awesome. So then, Every library should do that. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's it's something that caught fire a few years ago, and uh, a lot of libraries here in Suffolk are doing it. And it's fun. The kids get a chance to learn about digital recording, and you know, there's a whole aspect to it that's really a lot of fun. So, next question: What do you love about your library? Are we speaking about my local library again? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> Any library? Oh, gosh. You know, I have to say our small kind of rural system does a fabulous job of collection development. Um, I We also live near a larger urban, kind of more urbanized system. I shouldn't say it's urban, mm -hmm. um, but it's maybe it's suburban's a better description. Um, and they're very widespread, but I think that they are so widespread their budget is also spread out and they don't have quite the funding for as much um, I think honestly our local system does a great job in just getting stuff that I want to read I'm very biased I walk in they've got stuff I want you're doing a good job okay so we had talked before we started the podcast that this next question is is kind of hard for you because you don't actually work in a library um, this is one of my favorite questions but if, if you have to take a pass on this one it's fine what is the weirdest thing that's ever happened in your library? Now, the UR can mean any, anything. I know you want a really good story. I've been racking my brains all day over this. You know, this probably actually will take up this question. I just thought about this now. It'll probably take up this question and the next one. So I might answer them both with one go. Okay. So just let everybody know it's the next question, which is who's your favorite regular patron? So oh, let's this go ahead. My least favorite. Okay, let's. <laughs> but it makes for a weird story. Let's slam them together and see what happens. Right. Okay, so I, this is when I was a, a library assistant. So very early on in my library career, and I was working in a small suburban branch, and our branch was very much under construction. And this also was pre-graphic internet, I should add. So we did actually have internet through links. Remember links? Oh yeah. 
So, uh, but we didn't have graphic internet at that point. Um, so we were very much under construction. I mean, we were down to concrete floors, shelves were pushed together, stuff was under tarps, but we were still open at one point um, with very limited computer access, limited access to our actual collection. And to boot, we were a small suburban system. So keep that all in mind. So we had a gentleman come in and, and this is this guy, we called him the train guy because every time he came in, he wanted to know about trains. That's not all that unusual. But he came in, he seemed to completely not absorb the fact that we were under construction and really not able to <laughs> access the vast majority of our collection. I'll be honest, I'm not sure why we were still open. Um, and he came in, he was, and he was a kind of patron where he was very demanding. You know, you know, you always have those patrons when you work in a library, the ones where you kind of fight over to see who, who gets to go to the back room while they're there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He was definitely one of those patrons and he came in and he was just, he just completely ignored the fact that we couldn't really even get to our shelves. We could barely use the computer to get information at that point. And he was just demanding that we find this information for him and we just couldn't. And he walked out, he was all mad. And we're like, I, you know, we're throwing our hands up in the proverbial air going, what, what, we can't help you at this point. I'm sorry. Um, there was we could send him to another library, but he didn't want to do that. So I don't know if that that's not as weird as probably some other stories you've had, but that is stuck in my mind to this day because I've never seen anybody so outright uh, ignore everything going on around them and still demand service. Yeah, I think everybody, every library has at least one patron like that. Oh, at least one. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, last question. What are people without library cards missing out on? Oh, absolutely everything. It drives me crazy when people don't use their library. In fact, this happened to me today. My husband, my husband, who knows that I work for libraries and um, have pretty much spent most of my adult life working in libraries. Um, his mother asked him to get a book. And what did he do? He turned around and he ordered it on Amazon. And I just about killed him. <laughs> I was like, you, you, you know where I work, right? <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't wow. have to buy this book. I, it was like a Deepak Chopra book. I'm pretty sure I could have gotten my hands on it. This wasn't some obscure tomb from who knows when. Um, but there's so much in libraries. Um, a lot of people don't know what happens in libraries. And I know that we're still very much working on our marketing. Um, but, you know, a lot of folks still associate us with books, although my husband obviously is not one of those. <laughs> But, uh, you know, there's so many, there's, there's so much going on. There's programs for every age and every interest. And it just amazes me that people don't take more advantage of what's there. I mean, and, and even some of the most common things about libraries, I, I have asked librarians many times in my workshops, how many of you had a patron ask how much it costs to rent a book at your library? Oh, yeah, exactly. The most fundamental concept that we are free um, isn't out there if people are still asking us that question. So they're missing so much. They're already paying for it in some format. They should take advantage of it. Absolutely. And it really is funny when people say, oh, how do I become a member? Yes. How much does it cost to get a library card? <laughs> exactly. And I know there are some places that are like contract, you know, contract patrons where they have to pay a nominal fee to get a card because maybe it's not in their area and they have to go to another right. area. But it just cracks me up when people... They think, and again, dating myself, they think it's blockbuster sometimes. 
Well, they need like for a, many of them. That's the analogy that they they can make. They they don't understand the idea of a free institution. Right, and maybe that's because you know we become so jaded because we think everything costs money, and and it does. It does. It comes out of you know taxpayer revenue, but it's something that's evenly distributed through you know here here where we are through the the property tax levy. But uh, you know people don't understand that you know it really is free and that you know you're paying for it through your taxes and if you rent or you know you're passing through you know you still can use the building and we open especially at our library uh if you're a resident of the county you can use your card to do just about everything with the exception of some things like some of the, the makerspace stuff but we let you take anything including new books that's so, great yeah it's, there's there's just tons right so that's why it's my that's really is my favorite question because the answer is universally the same and missing out on everything. So this was fun, right? This was fun. Yeah. So thanks for being such a great sport and answer, answering our crazy list of questions. Um, it's been awesome having you on the podcast. And if, if you have some plugs, go ahead. Go for it. Oh, I don't have anything to plug right now. Um, I'm trying to take a little bit of a hiatus from writing, actually. And when I start writing again, I don't know what I'm going to write about so much because, like I said, my – my gut feeling right now, based on everything we're seeing, is that social media is, is in some major decline, and the stats are starting to bear that out. So I don't know. My next book might be about the death of social media or its transformation into something completely different. <laughs> what about you want to plug your blog or anything like that? Sure. Um, if you would like to hear more of my sarcasm and uh, <laughs> occasional insights, uh, you're welcome to follow me at MeanLaura, M-E-A-N-Laura, L-A-U-R-A, dot com. Um, that's my nickname, and actually, it's not just because I'm sarcastic, and but also it was sort of an in joke because the name of the blog is "What does this mean to me, Laura?" So the short name is MeanLaura.com. <laughs> That's great. That's such a great website. It's such a great URL. Thank you. Because it can mean so many different things, and it, it's nice to keep people guessing sometimes. It's too much. Any other plugs? You want to plug your That's books? Go ahead. You can plug your books. Oh. I've, I've got books. If you still, um, The most recent one is The Librarian's Nitty Gritty Guide to Content Marketing. Uh, and if you're not familiar with content marketing, it, it really is the next step, the evolution of social media and learning to do social media so that you're actually um, possibly reaching an audience and doing it so you're not just throwing things at a proverbial digital wall and seeing what sticks. Very cool. I have to uh, make sure we make that part of our professional collection. Thank you. That would be great. Oh, absolutely. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you for having me. Good luck in all your future endeavors. Thanks. So that's all the time we have for this edition. If you have any questions or comments on our show, please go to the contact us section of our website at thelibrarypros.com. We'll include links and photos from this and all of our episodes on the site. And don't forget to visit us on social media at Twitter at, at thelibrarypros.com or at thelibrarypros.com. Plus, uh, on Facebook or facebook.com slash libraryprose. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. And remember, the opinions stated by the Library Pros and their guests are those solely of them and not Chris or Bob if Bob were here. Or the Station Library or Emma Clark Library or any other library. So we will see you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippin Productions and by the Library Pros themselves. 
Christy Cristofaro, and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.